It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I'm delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 301, and today we are talking about books being released on March 9th, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Vanessa! Liberty! How's it going? Good! There's sun where I am. Last time I talked to you, I think I was getting ready for a snowstorm, so I'm... Yeah, I'm excited. It's really <laughs> stupid cold here, though. It's like, is it? yeah, oh. it's like 30 degrees, but the wind has just been awful. So it's like, it's like, feels like 14. I'm like, great. Like, why don't you just say that it's 14 <laughs> oh, out then? Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, I think it's, I keep telling people like, oh, I'm officially a changed person. Because now when it's 40 something, I'm like, F yeah, I don't need a scarf. And it's like, I, I would never in my dizziest daydreams have thought 40 degrees was like outside weather as a San Diego. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I'm officially a resident of the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I think it's in like the 50s maybe. And it's <laughs> like, I'm about to go outside and sing the sound of music. <laughs> yeah. 40 is like, I go out to the mailbox in a t-shirt and shorts, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's nothing. But the wind is, is wild. It took... A bunch you know, of branches yeah. down. It took the doors off my neighbor's shed, like which have been oh. closed and locked for all these years. All of a sudden, decided it was like, okay, here they go. <laughs> but luckily, they just fell off and they didn't fly into anything. It took one of my bird feeders. Oh. We have no idea where it is. Oh, it's like just gone. Unless it was like a cover. Unless the birds actually took it or some squirrels maybe in little cat suits. <laughs> and it made, you know, like blame it on the wind. I don't know. <laughs> Ta-da! all part of a plot it's pretty you, wild you've uncovered it <laughs> yeah we are deep into our goofy because we actually just spent like 20 minutes trying to be able to speak to one another because you know. we have so many different forms like or so many different i don't know what's the word i want format uh platforms yes stuff. that's the word yeah. i want platforms we have so many different platforms that we talk on like when i used to record with kelly we used one specific plot we used the slack chat because it was the mm-hmm. only one that we could get to come in where she was for some reason and you and i use zencaster because it's the only one that works for you on the other side of the country and then we and so zencaster just updated and long story short which is it's too late for that now <laughs> we had some issues zencaster updated and wow did it take a very long time for it to i'm really glad that you told me in advance that it requires your <laughs> camera like you, yeah it's all or nothing because it weirded because me out too <laughs> i would have been like ah, not ready for facetime well, when I first clogged on, I did see my, yeah, my non-makeup giant headphones double chinning because of the way I was. I was like, that, no, that, that cannot. No, that's not going to happen. So I was like, Liberty, don't freak out. It's going to open your camera. I don't understand why they think everyone would just want that, like, across the board. Like, No one I does. I still think I it should you. be. Yeah, it should be, like, <laughs> do you want to use the camera still? But no. 
So we quickly, you know, turned them off as soon as we had to turn them back on. (laughs) (laughs) No one needs to see that. No. It's the weekend. We're relaxing. Nobody wants to talk on a camera. I also don't understand. I do a lot of Zoom calls now. Mm-hmm. And there, it's like a lot of like calls with publishers, and they say, you know, turn your camera on. We'd love to see you. It's like, wh- why? Yeah. Like I, go, I, I watch these events, and there's like 50, 60, 70, 200 nope. people in those little Mm-mm. tiny squares, and you're just watching them sitting at their house watching the event. And I'm like, well, I mean, it's nice to know that they're real people, but. Yeah, but. It might not be like my cat, like the side of my cat, like 90% of the time, because the cat walks back and forth in front of the camera. The camera, you yeah. Know? Like, but I, they're always like, why don't you turn your camera on so we can see you? I'm like, no, thank you. No, no thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, obviously, everyone wants to talk about books, and we'll get there in a second. But I, yeah, the staff, we do like a once monthly chat that like really we do need to have the video on for because it's one of those that like in a regular life we would be doing it like in person but we can't blah 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 yeah one of our uh people over in the like ad op sales team my friend hannah she has a a dog who absolutely has like his he's a little bit anxious and he loves like if he sees that her camera's on like he wants to be part so i'd say for 60 percent of the meeting you see hannah's maybe eyes (laughs) <laughs> and then beneath her, she's holding this, like, again, formidably sized, I think he's an Aussie, like a small Aussie. Anyway, <laughs> it's hilarious because it's like you just see dog, but then, like, we're talking about sales number. <laughs> just, like, hey, Sebastian. <laughs> like, so, yeah, it, it happens. Well, he's learning a lot from these meetings. Indeed, he is. He's all caught up. I have seen the screenshots. The way that your cameras are set up for those meetings, you look like the Brady Bunch. We really do. Like That's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, <laughs> and we joke because we do like, yeah, you know, we have to call on people. We're like the person to the, my left, which is not the same on everyone else's left, obviously. But it feels super Brady when we're like, and now you go. We like point. It's the whole, <laughs> this is where we're at in life. It's like Hollywood Squares <laughs> with Shadow Stevens. Indeed, I'm so old. <laughs> uh, it's okay. We okay, are so we are going to talk about books today. <laughs> We are. And we're also going to answer some more listener questions. Thank you to everyone who's been sending in questions. We do have space for a couple more. So if you want to send us one of your questions, you can do so at all the books at bookriot.com. We will be doing some more next week and the following week. So you still have time. And now we're going to hear from a sponsor. So. It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. Like I said, we are actually going to talk about books today. And my first pick is a fantastic post-apocalyptic novella called We Shall Sing a Song Into the Deep by Andrew Kelly Stewart. The very first sentence of this says, Kensical for Leibowitz meets Hunt for Red October. I was like, sold, sold. I'm totally going to read this because The Kensical for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller is my very favorite science fiction novel. If you haven't read it, it's incredible. It was written in 1959. And it takes place far into the future where there's been a nuclear war. Most of humanity has been wiped out. And there's like an order of monks who find a bunker with this guy's grocery list. And it's like a whole thing. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. When you think about the fact that it was written 60 something years ago, it's even more amazing. 
but so anyway, so I was really into like Canticle for Leibowitz. You hardly ever see books compared to that. So I was all on board. So this one takes place on a nuclear submarine. Now, I was a little apprehensive at first because submarines really freak me out. Actually, anything under the water really freaks me out. I get very stressed out thinking about things like you're in the water and something can swim up to you and it just kind of stresses me out. Like I would do everything in my power not to play the underwater parts of World of Warcraft until it was absolutely necessary to get things for a quest or something because it stresses me out even on a video game. So I already knew going into this that this was going to be stressful, but exciting. And it was so good. So it's a post-apocalyptic novella about an order of monks aboard a nuclear submarine called the Leviathan. This is set in the future. Most of the world, there has been a huge worldwide nuclear war. Most of the world has been basically annihilated. And now this order of monks live on this nuclear submarine. They get by with what they can. They fish. They eat algae. They grow whatever they can, mushrooms and stuff. But basically, they're sick. They're very unhealthy. They're not getting the nutrients that they need because they're just driving. I don't I guess driving around in a submarine. How does a submarine move? Like, what do you do with a submarine? They're just going back and forth around in the oceans. And, you know, they're sick. They have scurvy. Um, some of them have radiation poisoning because they work in the core, keeping it going. The, the submarine is very old now. It has a lot of electrical problems. There's always something happening. Um, and they've been on board for many, many years now. They also have their church. They have uh, services every day, and they have the choristers who sing in these services every day. And so they're going about their business just doing this from day to day. But also aboard the submarine is what is supposedly the last nuclear missile in existence. And the head of the, of the monks is called the Kaplan, like the chaplain and the captain of a boat. So he's the Kaplan, and he's dying. He's very sick because, you know, they're all very sick. and he. Uh, calls one of the quiesters to his his office, and he tells this quiester, Remy, I want to give you the launch key to this last nuclear missile. Now, here are some things that you should know, and I'm not spoiling anything. It's right in the description. Remy is actually a girl. Nobody on board knows this except for the dying Kaplan. He rescued her from a boat above the, the ocean. Like, like I can't remember exactly what they call it, like for the people who are on the water and not underwater. But he rescued her and said she was a boy and raised her. And now, you know, he's telling her, you know, I want you to have the launch key. Because they had this idea that it was their mission to launch this last nuclear missile, like when God tells them to. Basically, like, they're just waiting for doomsday. And now he doesn't believe that that's the case anymore. And he knows that the monk who is going to take over for him when he dies is very different than he is. He's very cruel and he's sort of unstable, really. And he's very fanatical about the end times. And the Kaplan doesn't want him to get the launch key. So he gives it to Remy and she hides it on the boat. But the Kaplan, after the original Kaplan dies, the new Kaplan knows like that, that she knows something. And so he's always watching her. So she can't like move the key again, and he also wants her to to do things that she doesn't doesn't want, like go up on top of the submarine. And he punishes her by putting her friend Laszlo in the core of the ship because she knows that he will get sick there. And the Kaplan is punishing her friend uh, to get to her, and she can't go find the key because he's always watching her. And then she gets some information about the world at large that kind of changes everything about what she knows. And so Remy has to figure out how she can save Laszlo and stop the new Kaplan from finding the key and launching the missile. 
And that's just, there's so much more going on. It's a very short book, but there's a lot going on. And I found it to be entirely plausible. I thought the science and the realities of the way they live and what happens to them and the world in general were very plausible. It was really exciting. It was very imaginative. I want to give content warnings for mentions and descriptions of murder, physical violence, drowning, an apocalypse, obviously, uh, also child abuse, uh, castration, and starvation. But it's a very intense, tightly wound little book, and I loved it. It is called We Shall Sing a Song Into the Deep by Andrew Kelly Stewart. That was quite the list of trigger warnings. <laughs> I was like, ooh, ah, ugh. <laughs> I like to try and, and get them all if I can. Oh, no, yes. It was more the, the sequence of them. <laughs> I was like, ooh, oh, ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I need to gird my loins. If that's the thing one still says. I don't know. But anyway, I guess I should tell you about a book and stop being weird. I believe on the last uh, time we recorded that I said I was going to talk about this book, uh, assuming that I liked it. And I did. I loved it. So I am now going to tell you about Act Your Age, Eve Brown by Talia Hibbert, which is a contemporary romance. It is the third book in the Brown Sisters series. So if you've read and loved Get a Life, Chloe Brown, and I think Take a Hint, Danny Brown. I have a habit of mixing those titles up. But anyway, it is just more of that same Steamy, romantic, hilarious, awkward rom-com type of thing that Talia Hibbert just like does so well. So Eve is the youngest. She's definitely one of the younger. I think she's the youngest of the Brown sisters. You know, we saw her in the other two books and all the, the sisters make appearances in each other's books. And nothing kind of ever goes right. Eve is very much like the young when she's the dreamer. She's the one that's kind of dabbled in and out of like lots of different types of careers and doesn't ever seem to like really make one stick. And this time she was, she thought maybe she'd finally found a thing that she could adult at successfully, which was she was doing event planning. But then she sort of took a, I guess what we can call a stand for integrity at her, I think it was a friend of hers wedding, which they had to do with doves. She basically felt like the doves needed to be released and shouldn't be held captive. And the wedding was, you know, allegedly ruined because of these released doves. And it becomes kind of like a big society scandal. So her reputation's kind of, you know, ruined. So she again has no job and is just sort of living off of the... I think trust that her parents have, or, or um, I don't know if it's an actual trust, but like allowance that she gets. And her parents are like, okay, so enough is enough. Like you, you got to get a job. You got to hold it down. Like you have to adult. Like you've been relying on this safety net, you know, long enough. Go out and, and be an adult. So she is kind of hurt by the fact that she feels like they don't have any faith in her and goes for this long drive, like super long drive, much longer than she, you know, realized it was. And she sort of looks up and it's like, oh, hey, like I went... I went pretty far. And she is outside, more or less, this very nice looking B&B, you know, bed and breakfast. And this part I can't remember because it's, you know, it's been about a month and a half since I read it. I want to say she goes in because she needs to, like, use the bathroom. <laughs> but she she goes in for some reason. And somebody immediately approaches her and is like, oh, are you, you know, here to interview for the chef position? And she's like, yeah, 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 sure, sure. Um, definitely doing that. And so they lead her, you know, to to be interviewed. And in the interview is Jacob, who's the owner of the B&B, and he is, you know, textbook, like, perfectionist, like, expects, has very, very high standards and wants this B&B to be, you know, his, like, the hospitality industry is, and cracking into it and, like, being a top name in it is very important to him. So he takes one look at Eve. She's got, like, a graphic tee on and, I think, sparkly sneakers, maybe, and, like, her purple braids. And he's like, yeah, no, not a chance on hell. Like, she doesn't fit the picture of what he thinks is, you know appropriate quote-unquote for this b and 
she is like, okay, fine, like, didn't want the job anyway, sort of thing, and goes to leave, and then through a <laughs> a series of unfortunate <laughs> events, she hits him with her car. She hits Jacob with her car. Supposedly, you know, by accident, and it is by accident, but it becomes obviously a big thing. She's like, this guy just insulted me, I walked out in a huff, and then I, like, hit him with my car. Whoops. So now his arm is broken. The B&B is understaffed because they were already interviewing for a chef position. And now like the owner who you know, runs the, the joint is out of commission. So the business, his business partner basically tells Eve like, yeah, we're going to hire you to stay around and help. He does this while Jacob is in the hospital. So Jacob comes back to be like, um, no, I didn't give you the job. Why are you here? And she's like, haha, I am your chef and I'm running this place, you know, while you're out for the count. And... You know, hilarity ensues, but also other things. <laughs> so this book has representation for being on the spectrum. I don't remember if they actually list specifically that it is autism, but I think so. But Jacob is on the spectrum. And so they work through a lot of that on the page. And I won't go into spoiler territory, but point being that there's a lot of really healthy discussion between both characters on like what that means and the stigmas, you know, surrounding being on the spectrum and mental health issues kind of in general. And then again, typical Talia Hibbert, the book is just hilarious. It's, it's steamy. It's definitely very steamy. The parts that are steamy are super steamy, which I loved. But the banter between the characters is always really great. They're both, you know, especially Jacob is like super prickly in the beginning. And it's really fun to watch just the utter juxtaposition of these character types interact because she's like, yeah, pretty. Like I, she's always listening to music. Her her playlist is woven into the book really like well. It's it's kind of cool. You can go and I, I think she even lists at the top of the book like all the songs that are on you know Eve's playlist. So it's just it's fun. It was a really great little piece of escapism. And yeah, I love Talia. Like she has a really excellent like she has her finger on that pulse of like really hilarious rom com with a fun bit of steam. So. Um, this books are written so that you could read them completely out of order. In fact, I did. I read them two, one, three, and it's absolutely fine. It, there's no spoilers in that way. And again, it's a romance, so you kind of know you're always going to get that happily ever after. So that is Act Your Age, Eve Brown by Talia Hibbert. Okay. My next pick is another one of those books that got kicked into 2021 uh, when the pandemic hit. And it was really sad because it's so good. And I know everybody's been waiting to read it. It's How Beautiful We Were by Mbolo Mbue. And uh, you might recognize Mbue's name. She wrote Behold the Dreamers, which was an excellent novel that seems to have just come out. But no, I think it was like five years ago now, which is just remarkable. Um, and this one is set in a fictional village on the African continent. It's called Kosawa. And it's like my last pick. It's a book about, well, it's about so many things. But at the heart, it's about humankind poisoning the planet because Kosawa is this beautiful village and this American oil company named Pexton comes in and they get permission to drill on the land and suddenly this beautiful village is now polluted. The lands and the water are polluted. Nothing grows in the soil anymore. The well water is basically a death sentence if you drink it. The rivers are polluted so you can't fish. You know, it's bad for all the animals that drink from the rivers. And this goes on for years. And the company keeps saying, oh, we're going to clean this up. It's, you know, we're going to take care of this. But they don't. And, like, years go by full of empty promises and they never do anything. So finally, members of the village decide to take matters into their own hands. The book is narrated by 
children, like it's from several different points of view of children who grew up around this one specific family and also the daughter of this family and kind of like looking back at this time. You know, it's about the effects of Western colonialism and capitalism on this village. And while I, as I mentioned, this is a a fictional village, uh, it is steeped in true events. Like this is something that happens, you know, basically like this village's, you know, corrupt dictator doesn't care about his people. You know, he cares about money and impressing, you know, the Americans. And it's about America's complicity in these kind of events. You know, like there's all kinds of stuff going on in this country, but there's all kinds of things that we're involved in in other countries that are that are just terrible. And, it, you know, it looks at the generational trauma of the people who lived in this village. There are some really heavy trigger warnings for this. Trigger warnings for mentions of violence, murder, child death, animal death, slavery, and sexual assault of both children and adults. It is a very heavy, heavy story and subject, but it's important. It gives you a lot to think about. And Mbue is such a beautiful writer. I think that it's worth reading. So again, it's called How Beautiful We Were by Mbolo Mbue. I've been meaning to read that one too. I've actually, I was having a hard time believing that the first one came out that long ago, but I think it did. It's, yeah, it's been a bit. It's was, wild. Yeah, time, time flies. Okay, let me tell you about my next pick, which is very predictable because it has mythology in it. And if there's a mythology book in the world, unless Liberty has taken it first, I will probably have read that. So this book is Women and Other Monsters, Building a New Mythology by Jess Zimmerman. This book does have a trigger warning for mentions of sexual assault. It's not graphic, but, uh, you know, it is referenced in the discussion of the different monsters. Jess is the editor-in-chief at Electric Literature, Electric Lit. I love their site. We often feature stuff from them in our like list-to-list roundups where we you know round up lots of cool bookish list-type stuff from around the internet, but they're just a, a great site in general. And this is her, her book. It is a, a cultural analysis, basically, of the way of female monsters and how they're portrayed, specifically in Greek mythology, although you could just right, I'm sure, a manifesto on, you know, the way f- females are portrayed as monsters in just literature in general. But let's, let's stick to Greek mythology here. Um, spoiler, misogyny. And so she, each each chapter, I think there's 11 chapters, she takes on like a specific female monster. So, you know, Medusa, the Harpies, the Furies, the Sphinx, and breaks down why we see them as monsters, how they became to be monsters, which I found really interesting. As much as I thought I knew about mythology, I definitely had a few lessons to learn here. And she looks at how women have been labeled as monsters for daring to be everything from sexual beings to feeling anger, to expressing anger, to feeling indignant when we've been wronged, like really, really wronged, and and asks readers to re-examine, you know, women to re-examine our relationship to hunger, to anger, to ugliness and ambition, you know, traits that are so often vilified. And and ask questions like, you know, is the worst thing in the world to be ugly, even though that is absolutely what especially a lot of the, you know, the stories in, in Greek mythology would chalk it up to be like, oh, no, you're ugly. Uh, like, in fact, you're so ugly that you kill people by looking at them. Like, that's what kind of a message, you know, is that. <laughs> and then also, you know, she weaves in a lot of personal aspects, especially from like her relationships and how they relate to these themes, which I found to be a really interesting format. And basically at the end is like, and, and throughout the book is like, you know, reclaim the label, like monsters get to be these complete, 
like unrestrained, larger than life, over the top characters in ways that women have traditionally not been allowed to be, you know, for the sake of maintaining norms or not pushing the boundaries of what's considered, you know, feminine or appropriate. And it was just so much fun, especially if you are, you know, a mythology nerd like I am. And even if you're not, because again, it'll be one of those that fills you with a lot of did you know moments. Like, I don't know how I went this long without really knowing that in Ovid's version of it's obviously a, a big story, but the Medusa narrative, according to, to Ovid, Medusa was actually a beautiful woman. She was, she was stunningly gorgeous. And then she was sexually assaulted in, I think, Poseidon's temple. No, in Athena's temple by Poseidon, who like couldn't resist her and then, you know, took her against her will. And obviously that's ridiculous, but that is like how it's described that he just couldn't resist her. And like, that's why he had to take her. And that's ugh, so gross. But again, gets to the heart of why the whole discussion of this book is important because of the way that women are portrayed and, and blames place where it absolutely should not be. And Athena punished Medusa for that. So again, Medusa is the one who gets violated and Athena punishes her by making her like hideous, giving her, you know, the head of, of snakes. So like, that's how she became to be. And then, you know, there's a whole other story that goes from there and how Athena and Medusa, like at one point, you know, are fighting and, and then they're trying to kill her because she's so ugly that she turns people to stone. It's like, yeah, but the whole reason she became that way is because you made her that way. And then it'll, you'll, you know, it'll make you all kinds of angry. Um, but again, it's such, such a fun book. I did this one on audio and it was excellent. She actually narrates it herself. Just, uh, ooh, I think she does. Now I'm having second got thoughts. But um, well, although the performance is, is wonderful, it's great. I do think that if you are the kind of person who, like I often do, starts to look up the characters that you're reading about, I think I would have liked to maybe to do this one in print so I could stop, maybe make notes and then like go do my incessant Google rabbit holing. Although I kept having to hit pause, which I guess is fine. But I just liked to be able to make notes because as you know, anybody who, who follows mythology knows, like, you look up one character and you're going to find the story of about 15 others. So, so much fun. It's a really great piece of feminist lit with that, you know, dose of mythology for those of us who, who really like that kind of thing. So, that is Women and Other Monsters, Building a New Mythology by Jess Zimmerman. Jess Zimmerman is really cool, and I'm very excited about her book. Ah, oh, it's so good. And now I get to tell you about a book from one of my very favorite authors. It is The Ghost Variations, 100 Stories by Kevin Brockmeyer. You may have heard me drool over Kevin Brockmeyer's writing before on the show. He doesn't write very often. It's every few years. But I am so into everything that he has written. It's a reason for me to celebrate when he has a new book coming out. This is probably not a great book to read at this time in history. But if you want... I would recommend picking up The Brief History of the Dead, which is about a virus that has wiped out all of the planet except for <laughs> one person who is still left alive uh, in the Arctic Circle. She's she's a scientist. She's alone. And there's a city. It's the city of the dead. And the whole city is populated by the people that she remembers. So when she's the last person left on Earth, they're just people that she knew. And it's set in her life and also in the city. It's amazing. It's so amazing. He also wrote this incredible book called The Illumination, where people's wounds started leaking light all of a sudden. And if you want to read something really incredible, his short story, The Ceiling, which has won many, many, many awards, is available online if you Google The Ceiling by Kevin Brockmeyer. Now, to tell you about today's book, it is, as advertised, 100 stories about ghosts. They're about various hauntings. I read this on my computer, so I can't tell you how long these 
these stories are, but they can't be more than a couple pages each. And the whole book itself is 288 pages, so they must be very short. But they're about hauntings and ghosts. From the very first story, which is about a spirit that relives a moment in time that could have really changed everything for her. Like after she dies, she goes back to this one point in time when she was 15 and she was rejected by the the man that she loved. Um, and she walks back and forth in and out of this room. That's what her ghost just does over and over and over. Um, there is a parakeet who speaks for the dead. The dead like channel their voices through this parakeet. You know, there are ghosts, both physical, that can be both physical um, and like actually touch people and then, you know, not not have like a corporeal form. Um, there's ghosts of objects like trees. It's they're sad and they're scary. And the stories are full of longing because they're about ghosts, which are, you know, the things of the remnants of things that are departed, which is sad in itself. But also it tells us about how through death, what it means to be alive, like what these ghosts want and what they're striving for. And the stories are also broken up into sections. It's Each one is called Ghosts and. So it's like ghosts and memory and fortune and nature, time, family, words and numbers, love and friendship. They're just so poignant and thought-provoking and... You can read them all at once or you can read a little bit at a time. I realize like all the books I'm talking about today like require a lot of thought. Give you they give you a lot to think about and they're kind of heavy. So I guess this is just gonna be my heavy book show. But they're also some of these stories are like delightful and he's just so imaginative. I mean, I can't write one story, let alone like a hundred of them. Just like a book of a hundred stories. It's amazing. So many different things. So this is called the Ghost Variations. And it's by Kevin Brockmeyer. And now we are going to hear from another sponsor. Okay, Vanessa, what do you have for us next? Well, I have the levity to balance out your heavy for the most part. <laughs> so yay for teamwork. Excellent. I love <laughs> this next book that I'm talking about so much. And I have Rebecca to thank for putting it on my radar. It's called Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music by Leila Cobo. So I confess that when Rebecca first said, like, hey, have you heard of this book? Because it actually came out last week on the 2nd. I was like, oh, gosh, because I thought from the title, which I hope most people don't do this because it would be unfortunate and why I'm talking about it today, that it was going to be like a <laughs> beaver is our savior. But I don't know. I thought they were going to talk about like the success more from the like how it became a bigger hit once just a bit, I don't know why. I guess I just because it was called Decoding Despacito in particular. And that's like the huge text you see on the book that I was like, oh, please don't focus just on and this one song. Because to be 100% honest, the song like wore on me after a while. And now I've come back around to loving it and having this huge swell of pride for the music that I have already loved for most of my life. Because again, this is an oral history of Latin music, and it goes all the way back to, uh, I think the 80s is the when it first starts, maybe the 70s? No, it goes back further than that, I think. I cannot remember the, the date of the first one. But, and it, it basically chapter by chapter takes a different song that really broke through it you know it she gives the breakdown of the rise and success of the song like the cultural moment in which it took place the context of these breakout hits by latin artists that you crossed over broke through and paved the way for a history uh, of, of latin music and how it has changed the scene and the world in this book latin songs are defined as songs that are sung in spanish and i will talk a little bit more about that later but keep that in mind because obviously the term Latin 
and Hispanic and Latino, Latinx, those terms often get interchanged. And there's some important cultural discussion about them. But for the purposes of the book, Latin songs equals songs sung in Spanish. It was almost a little bit weird to me to experience the book because of the way that it talked about these songs being such big, epic moments in history when these are literally every, I think every single one of these songs, except maybe one or two, have been a part of my life. Like, I, you know, I'm the child of Mexican immigrants. Like, I grew up in a very, very Mexican family. These are the types of songs, like, I listened to Latin music all my life. I actually listened to very little non-Latin music in my early years. Like, the, I always joke around that the people that broke through that were, like, Michael Jackson, Elton John, and the Bee Gees, and maybe, like, Janet and Madonna. But, like, it took me a super long time. I always lost at, like, trivia-related activities because, like, classic – like, I literally am only just now discovering the Beatles, I'd say, like, the last 10 years of my life. And so it starts back with, of all songs, I would have lost this bet if someone told me to pick the first one that they, she talks about. And it's Feliz Navidad, <laughs> which I didn't realize was such a huge deal when Jose Feliciano wrote it. You know, he was putting together, like, a Christmas album and was already having, like, a certain modicum of success, but sort of randomly thrummed on his guitar and kind of came up with this song that even his kids thought was really catchy – and so they sat down to record it, had a really great time doing it, and then boom, it's like one of the most iconic Christmas songs, and you still hear it literally all the time, you know, everywhere. It talks about this group called Tigres del Norte that does corridos. If you don't know what corridos are, they're these, like, it's a narrative style of song that's really popular in Mexico and I think, like, the southwestern U.S. The songs are usually about, like, oppression <laughs> or history or, like, daily life. I always say that it's a little bit about, it's kind of like, Mexican country sometimes, not that countries about oppression specifically, but again, like these narrative stories about the things that are happening to you in your everyday life. Uh, and then there's narco corridos, which are the ones that are broiled in with like drug culture. And it was interesting to hear now that you know that background that like one of the most like prolific songs from this group was produced by an Englishman. I was like, oh, sure, 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 sure. Uh, Julio Iglesias is another one that they discuss, which if you don't know, is Enrique's dad. And if you, you know, again, have not been following Latin music, like he was the dude back when I was growing up. He sang my the song that I danced with my dad to at my quinceanera. <laughs> he was on the Golden Girls. Like he was a big cultural icon. He was very seen as like a boy well, was a womanizer always dressed in like white linen and the song that she uh, Leila Cobo decides to talk about here is the one that he recorded with Willie Nelson and like how they met and recorded the song and it is comedy because again Julio rolls up in like this crisp white linen suit and Willie Nelson is high off of his mind and is like hey <laughs> what's up we heard we should record this song together and they recorded to all the girls I've loved it, you know, there's a case you're like wondering what other kind of artists are covered. She, she discusses Ricky Martin, Shakira, Carlos Vives, Rosalia, Juan Luis Guerra. I mean, these are all people that like changed the music scene. And that again, were the kinds of music that I was literally playing in my house since I was like too young to be able to, you know, sing along. Another fun like did you know is that when they were putting Ricky Martin's album together, Tommy Mottola was trying to get him to perform on the Grammys, and they were like, no, he's not well-known enough yet. And he's like, funny, because he sold 10 million albums around the world, like, ten, or 10 million copies of his album. Like, clearly he's well-known. And they were like, yeah, no, we don't think it's going to be a big deal. And then that performance changed his career. Like, the performance of, uh, I can't remember if it was the World Cup song or Live in La Vida Loca. I think it was the World Cup song. And then when they were deciding to put together Live in La Vida Loca and to, like, make him a crossover album... They were still getting a lot of pushback from the album because they didn't think a song that was written, quote unquote, with Spanish words in it would be of appeal that the American audiences would understand. And the producers were like, what's a word 
that Americans will recognize that's in Spanish. And he's like, I know. Everyone knows Pollo Loco. Let's use the word loco. And that's how they came up with living la vida loca. Because they're like, oh, well, people will know what loca means. Because of Pollo Loco. (laughs) Which I just thought was like endless comedy. It is so much fun. Again, all of these, like the the chapters are structured where the beginning is kind of a discussion of like how the song came to be, in what moment it came to be, like what the concept was or like what was going on in the world when this song rose to fame. And then the rest of it is interviews that Leila, who by the way was like, she tracked like um, music, I think for Billboard magazine for the longest time. So she's, she's a huge wealth of knowledge in this arena. But the rest of the chapter is interviews with like the producers, the directors, the label management people, and in many cases, the artists themselves, sometimes from older interviews, sometimes from current. So you do get so much interesting background on how these songs were produced and like what the, you know, the blood, sweat and tears that went into them into making these like big crossover successes. The one last thing I'll end with, because I know I've been talking for a while though, is that again, the Latin music thing is kind of interesting because there's so many Spanish artists on this list. And a lot of folks, I think, will look at the Latin music part and be like, well, why are there so many Spanish artists on this list? The biggest one to kind of bring this conversation to the forefront lately has been Rosalia, who I love. Like, she's extremely talented, but she is doing this interesting thing with like flamenco music that there's a lot of discussions as to whether she's appropriating that because she is not a part of like that specific community in Spain. And then why she's being included in lists of Latin music when she is ultimately European. So those are all really, really important discussions. And they're very, you know, they're they're ones that should be had with care and depth. But for the purposes of this book, Leila just decided that anything that was written, you know, that basically, and this is how the charts definitely treat it, that if the song is in Spanish, it's considered Latin music. So, so much fun to spend time with this book. I inhaled it in a day. And there is actually a playlist on Spotify that someone made. I don't think it was done by the the author, I think it was just a random person, or maybe not, I don't know. But the, there is a playlist on Spotify that is literally in order the songs from this book. And I put that on in the background while I, I read and that was a lot of fun. So I'll stop talking now. So much fun. This book is Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music by Lila Cobo. All right. I have that around here somewhere. I haven't actually heard the song yet before. I always usually come to things like, I don't know, five, ten years later. So... <laughs> I'll hear it someday, but I do have that book. It's really, really fun. I like reading books about music. Yes, I think you'll love it. My last pick today is also a book that came out last week. It was a sponsor of the show, and we don't endorse titles on the show when they are a sponsor, but I still wanted to talk about it because I think so many of you would be excited to know about this book. And in keeping with the rest of my books, it is about death and murder and all kinds of dark subjects. It is called Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science by Erica Engelhoft. And like I said, it's not for the squeamish. This is a perfect book, though, for fans of Mary Roach and Caitlin Doty. The author is also the author of National Geographic's Gory Details blog. Uh, She is a scientist, and she talks about all kinds of things that interest her. These are stories that are a mix of both things that happen to humans and things that happen in nature and things that happen when humans are in nature. It's these fascinating tales of death and disease, you know, what happens to bodies, things about space exploration, mammals out in the world that also commit murder like humans. Uh, She talks about crime scenes, things that are considered taboo still pertaining to sex or to scientific research. 
there's a story about a biologist who studied the effects of insect bites by letting the insects bite him, which sounds terrible, but it's so interesting. And, you know, so it's it's very Mary Roach, very Caitlin Dolly. Like, if these are, like, you know, she calls them gross and weird, and that is what they are. But also she talks about how, like, if we discuss these things more often, they might not feel that way to us anymore. And I love her origin story. You know, she talks at the very beginning about how she became interested in this kind of stuff. And it's kind of like this amazing story where basically a lazy dump truck driver deposited the demolished remains of a dentist's entire office in an empty lot next to her house. Just like the whole office was there. All the files, all the x-rays, all the equipment, everything. Like someone had to make this office disappear. And instead of taking it to the dump, this guy just backed it up and drops it at the end of this lot by their driveway and she was very young she was like six or seven and her parents let her play with all the stuff that she found she filled her treehouse with dental x-rays molds from that she found of like teeth and teeth like and this is how she played and this is how she became interested in science and i just thought that was so great and cute and probably that's pretty gross to most people but i thought it was adorable and it's just, it's so fun. And you, again, like the last book I talked about, you can read this all at once or you can read a chapter at a time. And again, I want to remind you that it is not for the squeamish. There's a lot of discussion, uh, frank discussion of death. Um, so it is Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science by Erica Engelhopt. I bought that book the other day. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. Has a great cover, too. So in love with the cover. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, the cover. <laughs> the cover is the best part. It's so great. Okay, I will bring it on home now with my last pick, which is another one that came out last week. I didn't get a chance to finish another book that I wanted to read, and then I just happened to start listening to this one on audio, and I loved it so much. I was like, nope, got to talk about it, and it needs some extra love, because why not? So it's called Once Upon a Quinceañera by Monica Gomez Ira. Oh, this is so it's a contemporary YA. It is... So much fun. It's a... (laughs) Okay, so obviously the quinceañera part kind of gives away what some of this is about. But when we meet Carmen Aguilar... Actually, you know what? This might be more new adult now that I'm even like talking about this. But so Carmen Aguilar has just... She was supposed to graduate from high school, but she made a costly mistake wherein basically she was doing an internship that was supposed to be like the easiest of all credits to like wrap up her senior year. It involved, you know, getting a job and like, you know, doing an internship and then reporting back on it for for her class project. But the internship that she had, like the the guy that was her boss was super creepy and kept making passes at her and was just really inappropriate. And one day she had enough. So she was like, no, I'm not going back to that job, which sounds, you know, like the right thing to do, except that she never kind of cleared what she was going to do about it with anybody and just like wrote an essay on something completely different and turned that in and was like, well, that's my project. And they were like, yeah, no, like you never cleared this with us. We could have reassigned you. Like you can't just like make up your own project. (laughs) So she is now so many credits. I forget how many, you know, shy of graduating and she needs to fill it by, you know, redoing this internship course. So she decides to do just that. And she finds herself working at this place called Dreams Come True. It's a job that her best friend got her. And so she works as a dream. And what a dream is, is basically one of those like princess performers at kids parties. So like when the book opens, Carmen is sitting, you know, in a bell costume, like on her way to one of these parties. And she does the, you know, princess thing in a giant princess gown in the middle of a Miami summer. So not 100% comfortable, (laughs) but 
the gig is, you know, actually not that bad. Like she happens to be the right kind of talented. Like she can dance, she can sing, she can, you know, pretend to be a princess. And so again, she gets to do the job with her bestie. So like, eh, not so bad. It'll be a thing I do for the summer. And then, you know, officially get my diploma and call it a day. But then when she goes to this gig, she so soon discovers that the boy who broke her heart is, I mean, her ex is also working for the dream team because his dad is like a friend of the woman who hired her and he's staying with that woman for the summer. She was like, yeah, so you're going to work for me. And it's awkward because things did not end well. And so she's, you know, Carmen's like, great, like, this is the last thing I want to deal with. And then adding a layer to the awkward is that the dreams, you know, have now been hired to perform at the quinceañera of Carmen's younger bratty cousin, who basically betrayed Carmen several years ago. And in doing so led to the cancellation of Carmen's own quinceañera and like kind of ruined her reputation too. So she has a lot of bitter feelings towards this girl and she, you know, thinks she's like, she's a, she's a snot, she's a brat. Like there is a huge difference in the way that that cousin is raised. How she was raised like her and her, she was raised by a, pretty much a single mom and they didn't, you know, have a lot of money and couldn't really afford to do much like the quinceañera was just going to be a dinner. Whereas this cousin and her whole family, you know, the, the mom like, you know, quote unquote married well and they're very well to do. So there's just a lot of bad blood between the two. And now she has has been hired to like perform at this, you know, quinceañera. So she's just like, I don't want to do this in any way, shape or form. But if she wants to earn those credits, you know, she's going to have to manage to do it. She's going to have to, you know, dance her heart away in this brutal Miami heat and fend off, you know, the, the guy that she secretly likes, maybe kind of still has feelings for, even if she's ignoring them and also stopping her spoiled prima of her cousin from like ruining her own dang quinceañera. So that story is all super fun, especially if you are, you know, Latin American <laughs> and have ever gone through like the quinceañera thing, because there's just a lot of, you know, that's predictable, like family drama and like the dance practices for the baile sorpresa. Like it's, it's really fun in that way. It's great too. It gives you a lot of the uh, Miami feelings. It takes place, you know, in Miami and there's a lot of, of references to the city. What I loved about it most though, really, was Carmen's character because she is angry. Speaking, you know, earlier I talked about books that deal with, you know, women's anger. She is just angry at the world. She's mad at the way things ended with the guy and like why they ended the way that they did and the reputation that she got for something that she didn't even do. And she's angry at the differences, you know, that have caused a rift in her family between, you know, her cousin and her and her mom and her sister. She's angry at the dad who was never a real presence in her life and that everything that just kind of seems to be going wrong for her. And so she's just bristly. Like she, so many of the characters in this book keep trying to like maybe make amends or like make things right. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but even when someone's trying to extend an olive branch, Carmen is just so mad to the point where sometimes when you're reading her, you're like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe like give a little, and you know that's not maybe necessarily always fair, <laughs> but it's it's how it reads. And I liked that the book explored that, that it allowed her to like be angry and like express her feelings and give the the background for why she was feeling that way. And then to eventually see her, because there is, you know, a romantic element to the book, like kind of find her footing and and maybe reprioritize like what's important and what she needs to spend her energy on. So much fun. There's a lot of like fun Spanish in here. The audiobook of this is fantastic. It's narrated by Frankie Corso, who's one of my favorite um, folks in audiobooks, period, but definitely in like Latinx audiobooks. So it's just a lot of fun to spend time with. And that is Once Upon a Quinceañera by Monica Gomez Ira. Okay, those are our new books. What are you going to read next? 
I'm dipping so predictably back into the mythology pool because my library hold just came in for A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes, which is the story of the Trojan War from an all-female perspective. So it's giving me like Pat Barker, Silence of the Girls vibes, kind of. I'm, I'm excited. I'm only like a little bit of the way in. What are you reading? I am going to read Under the Whispering Door by T.J. Klune. T.J. Klune is the author of The House in the Cerulean Sea. This is another adult novel. Uh, that says it's about a ghost. I seem to have a theme today with death. <laughs> it's about a ghost who refuses to cross over and the ferryman he falls in love with. Very excited mm. to read this. So now we're going to answer a few more listener questions. I'm going to ask you the question that Chantal sent to us uh, because I think all the hosts should have a chance to answer this. And that is, do you do other jobs besides Book Riot? And if not, or also, what do you do for Book Riot? I love this question just because it always gives us all, yeah, a chance to like tell you what the heck we do. Um, when I started at Book Riot, which was now several years ago, as far as like when I was a you know contributor and then a contributing editor, I was a bookseller and also worked in retail and obviously wrote for the Riot. I am full time now staff at Book Riot. I'm the associate. Actually, now I'm one of two associate editors because we just recently brought on Danica, as I think she mentioned last week. But yeah, so I'm one of the associate editors. I started about a year and a half ago. I do all kinds of stuff. I edit content for the site. I do social media strategy and moderation, newsletters, giveaways, content for the site, our news post strategy, like all kinds of fun stuff. So yeah, that is what I do. And I am presently only working for Book Riot, which is nice. It's the first time in a long time that I only have one job. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Okay, so Kendra asks, if you weren't recommending books every week, what would you be recommending? Like ice cream, yoga mats, skincare, headphones, etc. I don't have any other option to say here besides tea. I'm such a ridiculous tea drinker. I have tons of it. I love all kinds of tea. I love the history of tea. So yeah, I would definitely actually want someday to like have a tea brand. It's like a, a dream in the pie in the sky dream would be to, to have my own, own little brand of teas. So yeah, I love me some tea. I think I would be recommending movies. In fact, my life almost took a very different turn. Like when I was 18 and, and I'd been out of school for several months, I got a job working at a video store. And then the day that I was supposed to start, uh, the owner gave the job to his sister who had just been laid off. And so instead, I ended up at a restaurant. But I loved movies. Like when I was in high school, we had an amazing video store nearby. Videos are what movies used to come on, kids. And I used to watch movies all the time, as much as I read books. And basically anything before 1995, I probably watched it. I know all the actors. like, And I still love, like, when I'm watching TV now, I'm like, that's the person from this, and that's the person <laughs> from that. And I think, like, if I wasn't recommending books, I probably would be, like, a, have, like, a movie blog or something, you know, because now I have no idea who anybody is or who's in anything because I'm constantly reading, but... I think it would be movies because I don't really – I eat like the same four things every day and <laughs> I read books so I don't really do much else. <laughs> you know, I am very partial to Joseph's chocolate hummus so I would definitely tell everybody mm -hmm. about that all the time. It's like eating uncooked brownie batter. It's amazing. Yep. But yeah. And yeah, that's all I got for that. Barbara wants to know, what is your favorite book from childhood? This was a really hard question. I didn't think about it for really? a long time. but it's, Yeah, because I have like, I don't know, different moments, I guess. Like, I, Yeah, there's like different ages that you choose different books. Yeah, so I was like, well, what does that mean? Um, but I settled on two, and I'll keep it short. But the first, my dad was a postman growing up. Like, he was eventually a postmaster, rose up anyway. But and yeah, that's what he did. He was a carrier when I was first 
Or he might have been a supervisor when I was first born. But anyway, I knew my dad as being a mailman. So there's this book called The Jolly Postman that has all these little like cutouts where like as the postman goes around to this very magical neighborhood with like witches and cats and stuff, like there's little mailboxes and you can pull out and read the letters. And so I was like, this book was written for me. Um, and then the <laughs> other one, I really believed that for several years. And then once I got a little older, I loved the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Like I wanted to run away and be in a museum. And I had a little brother who was like very similar to like her little brother. <laughs> Where, like he, yeah, I loved that book so much and I wanted to, to run away and try it, but never got the chance. <laughs> what about you? I watched a, an event with a bunch of Random House authors the other day and uh, Chang Rayleigh said that that was also his favorite book Aww. when he was young. I, I have the answer always. It's, it's The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin. Like, yes. <laughs> I knew yours. <laughs> I love that book so much. I loved the, I loved the puzzles. I loved how weird. I think that she basically invented reality television before it was a thing, you know, (laughs) saying like, here's a competition. We're going to put these 16 people in this one building and whoever figures out the clues, you know, gets all the money. I mean, really. And that was like 1972 or something. I am obsessed with that book. I wanted to be Turtle Wexler. I still want to be Turtle Wexler. Also, Ellen Raskin's middle name is Ermengarde, which is like, I just want to name everything Ermengarde. I don't know why. (laughs) Which also sounds like that, oh my god, thing, like that meme, like, but yep. it's amazing. Oh <laughs> yeah. And I just love everything about the book. And I think I read recently they're trying to make it into another television I series so, or yeah. a movie. It has been one, but it was like a while ago, 1997 or something, and, and it's hard to find, so I've never seen it. Mm. I don't need the things I love to be made into, you know, movies or television shows, but I will definitely watch it. And so today's last question, Marianne wants to know, who is your favorite Muppet? Miss effing Piggy, like, hands down. Yeah? I, um, when I was a kid, and I still actually do this, like, if I'm mad, I will, or, like, just frustrated, not, like, angry in conversation, but, like, if I stub my toe or, like, I'm angry at my computer, I make a face that's very Miss Piggy where, like, my top lip <laughs> comes over and I, like, shake. <laughs> when I was little, my friends used to be like, you look like Miss Piggy, which sounds like a hella diss, but I don't think they meant it that way. And she's, like, loud and opinionated and, like, kind of over the top and, like, you know, her purple eyeshadow. Like, I wanted to be her <laughs> yeah little. kermit is like a close second because of of him of her but yeah i love me some miss piggy <laughs> like i love her still when i was a little kid you know, we watched the muppets show and because that was on when i was a little kid we watched the muppet show and <laughs> sesame street and um my mom said that i used to karate chop my food off my high chair table like miss piggy after she <laughs> was like something similar <laughs> lots of kids must have done that <laughs> it was i loved her I think when I was little, my favorite Muppet was probably Animal, but he's kind of problematic if you think about it. Yeah. And then when I got older, it was definitely Gonzo because he was weird and I identified with him. And also Telly, which is kind of sad because Telly was always so bummed out and had no yeah. self-esteem. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I, I also identify with him. <laughs> it's very sad. But there's a thing I like to do when I do author interviews, um, like when I moderate author events. I like to do a couple of silly questions at the end. And sometimes I will ask the authors, like, if you had to eat a Muppet, which Muppet would you eat? <laughs> For example, Eric Morgenstern said... Big Bird, because she said she figures he would be the most like chicken. Although that's a lot of munching and chewing. Um, so that's very ambitious. That's like the first place my head went to was like Big Bird or Muppet, because I like chicken and pork. Carmel- <laughs> like Carmilla, maybe? Um, I would eat, I would eat Zoe, because she's so annoying. That's, uh, that's well, where I fall on that. This is an excellent way to wrap up our podcast. <laughs> it's a very strange question, but I like it. <laughs> I dig it. 
<laughs> and I appreciate everyone who has sent us questions. You can also send us questions to all the books at bookriot.com. And that is it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. If you want to send us an email or ask us questions, again, it's all the books at bookriot.com. You can find us online. Vanessa and I hang out on Instagram. She is Buenos DSSD. I am Franzen Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Tell us which Muppet you would eat. You know, give us a unicorn name, whatever you want to do. It helps other book lovers to find us. It's a, it's a really big help to us. So if you would do that, we would greatly appreciate it. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.